0: I'm Julie Moran, and I am so thrilled to bring you my podcast, Limitless. Boldly tackle your next chapter. There's a big movement to slow, simple living, of being more mindful in your everyday life. Today on my Limitless podcast, I'm speaking with Brooke McGallery, a huge advocate for this lifestyle. She's host of Slow Home, the podcast, and is the author of such best selling books as Destination Simple, Slow, and Care the radical art of taking time. After hearing her story and hearing her thoughts on living a more slow and thoughtful life, I feel compelled to begin my journey toward a simpler life. I think you'll feel the same way after listening. Hey, Brooke, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. So lovely to speak with you.
0: I really appreciate you making this work with me being in Atlanta, Georgia, and you in Australia. (laughs) I'm about to have dinner and you're just waking up. That's right. Yes, (laughs) The beauty of Skype. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, a few months ago, a friend of mine recommended I listen to the Slow Home podcast and I just fell in love with you and the concept of slow living. How do you describe slow living?
1: It's such a juicy question um, because I think it means something different to everybody Um, because essentially I think slow living is about creating the space and time in your own life in order to spend time and energy on the things that matter to you. So, you know, the things that matter to you is a very um, subjective kind of uh, concept, but I think one of the first real practical steps of creating a slower life is spending some time asking the question, what is important to me? Mm. You know, what do I want my life to add up to? What do I want, um, you know, my legacy to be? What do I want to look back on and and see? And, you know, that takes time to work through. And I think the slow part of it comes from how we create that time. You know, what things do we let go of?
0: Absolutely. And what was your journey to slow living? I mean, how did how did it get started for you?
1: Yeah, I always say that I write about slow living because I desperately needed slow living. (laughs) (laughs) It was not um, a natural place for me to land, but it was a very necessary place because uh, about 10 years ago, I was living the exact opposite of a slow paced life or of an intentional life. I ran a business, um, I had two young children, my husband worked incredibly long hours um, and I was on the treadmill of keeping up with the Joneses, you know, telling myself I'll be happy when I get this new thing or when I earn this much money or when we take this holiday uh, and then getting to that that achievement or that, you know, that thing and realizing that there was another thing behind it that I, I needed before I'd be happy. And when my second child was born, I was actually diagnosed with severe postnatal depression Mm. Um, and it was through that process that I I actually discovered in conversation with my psychiatrist discovered the idea of trying to do a little bit less you know she said to me one day um, (laughs) in a session where I was complaining about you know just being busy all the time and never enjoying the things that I should be enjoying in my life and she said well have you ever considered doing a little less Uh, And I said, no, is that an option? (laughs) (laughs)
0: And she said, yes, it's an option. (laughs) That's
1: right. You know, and it's funny because I was offended at the suggestion initially. I'm like, you know, basically what I heard her say was, you're not coping with the pace of modern life. You know, you're failing, you're falling behind. But essentially what she was doing was encouraging me to think in in a different way. And I went home and I, I Googled, I literally Googled, how do I simplify my life? And that was where I discovered the entire sort of subculture of simplicity and slow living and minimalism as
0: well. And you talk about finding your why, quote unquote, why, Mm. and how important that is. And for you, I believe it came in the act of writing out your eulogy. Can you tell me about that? (laughs)
1: Yeah, it sounds like a very morbid, macabre kind of thing to do. But the way it came about, um, I had decided through some of this inner work that I was doing that I wanted to start writing again. So I picked up a tiny uh, a book of writing prompts from mm. a bookstore um, quite a few years ago, and I just flicked through the pages. Um, and randomly opened it to the writing prompt that said, "Write your eulogy in three sentences." Wow! Um, and I was like, I was thirty-two at the time. <laughs> I had not given a single thought to my eulogy or to what it would contain or who would present it or to whom, and it kind of forced me to start thinking about that question of of legacy and, uh, you know, what this time and energy that I was putting into my day-to-day life was going to add up to because at that time I could have told you very clearly what my priorities in life were you know they were my family um, being a a positive parent being a a good partner and a sister and a friend and community member Um, but I wasn't living like they were my priorities Mm -hmm. and that was the real disconnect for me Uh, you know where my time was going so sitting down and reading that eulogy and recognizing how far away from that kind of life I I was was the probably the single most powerful moment of the whole journey up to this point.
0: And you've written three books on the topic of slow living. So I'd say you are an expert in the field and in your first book, Destination Simple, Everyday Rituals for a Slower Life, you mentioned that we consume more information in a day than our ancestors did in their lifetime. And I just stopped after I read that. And I just had to let that sink in for a minute. It's no wonder that one of your recommended rituals is to unplug from online, you know, and and just the world, even if it's only for a few minutes. Mm
1: -hmm. And, And, you know, that that statistic was true in 1999. Wow. So that was free smartphones. <laughs> um, wow. So I can't even imagine what it would be now. It must be, you know, every hour we mm. would be, um, you know, absorbing that level of information. And we're, we're simply not wired to have that infinite capacity. So yeah, uh, unplugging, you know, switching off the tech, getting out into the physical world or to our own a world I think they are such powerful antidotes to the overwhelm that we can feel when we spend so much time on our devices and absorbing all of that information um, because essentially when we're in that mode we're either producing you know we're working <clears throat> we're, we're being productive even in our downtime or we're consuming um, absorbing information watching Netflix reading listening to podcasts whatever it may be. All of which are, are positive things, but they both um, they both uh, sort of neglect that space in the middle, that space where we can just be. And I think it's that space of just being where we are gifted the opportunity to, um, I guess, to, to get to know ourselves a little better.
0: I know it sounds so simple, but it isn't. Why, why do you think it's so hard for people to slow down?
1: Well, I think it's it's a reflection of the society that we all live in, you know, and that is the norm. We talk about how busy we are. And I, I do think that the past 18 months have probably shifted that conversation in a way that we don't really understand yet. But essentially, and, and certainly when I wrote Destination Simple and Slow, it was uh, you know, people would say, "How are you?" And you would say, i'm I'm good. I'm
0: busy you know right. as if... let me tell you <laughs> what I've been doing. yeah,
1: exactly. And that's sort of how we measure our value or our worth to our families and our you know communities, our workplaces. And I think that that is, um it really neglects the fact that that as humans we aren't machines, you know, at a very simple <laughs> yeah. simple way of saying it. We're not machines. We cannot continue to operate at the same output day in and day out. Uh, and yet we're really kind of expected to. And I think that the other thing to keep in mind when when we ask ourselves that question is you know, it's not just a matter of us versus our willpower either. We're really, when you're looking at the tech industry, we are up against an entire industry of incredibly smart people whose jobs it is, (laughs) is to keep us connected to our phones or our screens, Um, you know, and they have huge amounts of research and data that help them to do that. So, you know, if you feel like this is a personal failing that you're finding it difficult to slow down. Please don't take it as a personal failing at all. It's, it's really what we exist in a system that is not necessarily set up for us to um, to succeed in slowing down. And that's why I think the more we talk about it, the more we normalize the idea of rest or downtime or play or, you know, uh, aimless wandering is of going to be of benefit to all of us.
0: I totally agree. You know, so many of us are multitaskers and we yes. take pride in the fact that we can juggle multiple things at once, but you instead recommend single tasking. And that's something that I had to find for myself many years ago when I was just doing a million things at once. So I say you can have it all, but not all at the same time. Yeah. And when I'm on a date with my husband, I have two daughters, and I say, unless you break your arm or are in an ambulance, <laughs> <laughs> leave your daddy and I alone on our date. <laughs> and when I'm with my girls, I my job knows that unless there's an emergency, I'm not going to pick up the phone. Yeah. When and and when I'm at work, both my husband and my girls know unless there is a real emergency, I'm mm-hmm. going to single task at my mm-hmm. job. So I f- I really found that years ago, and it just made a huge impact on my life. It allowed me to slow down and appreciate what I'm doing in the moment. Um, yes. What single tasking do you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really great to hear that from you as someone who has been Single tasking for a number of years because I often have conversations with people who are just at the beginning of this process and they can't quite see how they could make that work. So to hear you talk about it as a successful strategy is brilliant. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, but I often refer to the idea of work life balance when we talk about single tasking. And I think that it's a really damaging. Um, concept that we've been sold over over the years often most often I think to women um and what I mean if you've ever practiced yoga and you try and spend some time in tree pose you know balancing on one foot all of your energy and attention is going towards staying upright to staying balanced you can't think about anything else and I think that Trying to achieve work-life balance is much the same as that. We're just exhausted by the idea of somehow, magically, if I try hard enough, I will have given all of the important parts of my life equal amounts or, the you know, the correct amount of attention and time every day. And I just don't think that that's possible. So I, I talk uh, – it's not possible without burning out, I will say. I agree. Um, So I talk more about tilting, which is single tasking in action, essentially.
0: And I love, Um, I love, I want to stop you because I love you use the word tilting instead of balancing. And, Mm. And, and what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially what doing exactly what you, um, what you exemplify, which is choosing willingly to tilt out of balance you're on a you're on a date with your husband, so you're all in. You're tilting heavily into that time with your husband, and that means that not only are you present in that time, but you're also acknowledging and accepting that you are all out of all of the other mm-hmm. realms of your life. You know, unless of course someone's bleeding pretty, <laughs> <Right>. heavily or <laughs> yeah.
0: in the ambulance <laughs> on the way to the hospital. That's right.
1: <laughs> There's always exceptions, of course, but, you know, um, and I think that that allows us to show up to those different parts of our lives wholeheartedly and with as much of our presence and attention and energy as possible. Uh, And, and in effect, that allows us to be far more productive, far more um, present, far more effective as a partner or a parent or as a co-worker or a creator or whatever it is um, and reduces the level of guilt that we seem to carry around about not being everything to everyone all the time, which is we rationally understand is not possible. It's not possible. And yet we still try Tried to do to, it. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, what really hit me one day, I was in the park with my girls and I had come to this concept of single tasking. Like when, when I'm with the girls, I'm not going to answer my phone from work. And I saw this mom, she looked so frustrated. She had, you know, her two kids trying to push him on the swing. She had the computer, um, I mean, the iPod out, she had her cell phone on the other side, and she was trying to just do it all at once. And she just looked completely frustrated. And it hit me. I'm like, wow, I used to do just the same thing. You know, I tried to do it all at once.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, that's a a broader conversation, isn't it, about the, uh, about labor force and how, you know, how workplaces are set up for um, working parents particularly. Uh, and, you know, we might talk about having flexible work hours, but what does that actually look like in right. practical practical terms for people? But yeah, I mean, I have been that person many, many times. Um, and I think more conversations that we have about this is sort of opening up a broader conversation or I like to think that one day we will arrive at some kind of social contract, you know, where we can have this sort of shorthand conversation that we opt into and say uh, essentially what you've what you've constructed in your own life. You know, if I'm out, if I'm out of the office, if I'm with my family, I'm with my family and there's no point in trying to contact me about anything that's not an emergency and kind of have this framework in place, um, you know, for for the wider community. But I think the way we do that is by having conversations with friends, having conversations like this, having conversations with our partners and um, our children particularly, and role modelling what that looks like uh, and see how that ripples out into... Interchange.
0: Interchange. One thing I really love about you is your subtle tweaking of words, little nuances that really resonate. You know, instead of balancing, you're tilting. Instead of multitasking, you suggest single tasking. And one I really like is how you suggest everyone should have a morning rhythm instead of a routine. Mm. I think that's really interesting. Can you explain the difference?
1: Yeah, I, when I was a new mom, I thought that the best way to invite certainty and uh, stability to my day and my my young baby's day (laughs) was a very strict routine. Uh, And it took me a few months to realize that babies don't work like that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I spoke to my older sister who has um, five children and I sort of talked to her about my frustration and she said, yeah, I don't really aim for routine. I aim for rhythm. And that wow. stuck with me as something that we can still construct. You know, if you think about it as a musical term, you know, you can construct a rhythm, but you can speed it up and you can slow it down. So you you spend some time working out what your mornings need to include and then one or two things that you would like to include in your morning that might be a cup filling kind of, uh, you know, action for yourself and then just allow the speed and the, the, the tempo, I suppose, of your, your morning rhythm to unfold as it needs to. Uh, and I think that there's just far routine to me has failure attached to it. Mm. And anytime I, stepped out of rhythm uh, out of routine rather i felt like my whole morning was done you know i i i made a mistake and that was it right uh whereas rhythm allows for a skipped step it allows for sleep ins it allows for the kids to spill milk on the floor um you know it allows for those days where time seems to stretch out and you've got a little bit more of it uh i just think there's a lot of forget- Giveness to the idea of rhythm. Rhythm.
0: I agree. Yeah. You know, this is a new one for me, but I've started getting, not. I, I used to just jump out of bed, you know, and, and start the day. And now I purposely stay in the bed for two minutes and I don't time it, but I kind of know what two minutes is. And I, first thing I do is I lay there, I wake up and I, I'm thankful. I, I think of all the things that I'm thankful for. And then I have a prayer list and I pray for people, people that are sick, health issues, things that are on my mind. And I try to have that rhythm every morning. Now, some Mm -hmm. mornings I make all two minutes and some I don't. But it gives me a start of the day that starts me out thankful. And I have a rhythm that feels positive Instead of that, just jumping two feet on the floor and you know yep. <laughs> racing to to get out the door, <laughs> so that's exactly. my that's my new rhythm.
1: I think that's wonderful, and you know you're grounding yourself in the way that you would like to start your day. Like it's an intentional choice to to begin your day with gratitude and. Like, and love and compassion, and you're putting that out into the world and you're grounding yourself in it. Um, and, you know, I think when we hear the idea of ritual or rhythm, we can overcomplicate it. Yes. Uh, and we can make it feel like it needs to be a two hour sort of wellness routine right. <laughs> with yoga and, right. and juicing and, you know, journaling, which is wonderful, yeah. but probably not very realistic for the majority of people. Um, you know, so I think that even taking two minutes is so. It's so powerful because it's saying, "I'm A, I'm choosing to show up in this way. But B, it's showing that it really doesn't need to be um, a grandiose sort of um, experience in order to be powerful.
0: Yes. You know, in your other book, Slow, um, Simple Living for a Frantic World, you start off by writing a letter to the Joneses. Mm-hmm. What made you do that?
1: <laughs> you know, I just got so tired of what I call the I'll be happy when's, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'll be happy when, uh, you know, the, the kids have reached this age and sleep through the night. I'll be happy when uh, my business reaches these goals. I'll be happy when uh, I fit back into my pre, pre-baby jeans, you know, whatever right. it is that we've attached our happiness to is, is really a, a false ideal, I think, because what I found was that I would reach that thing that goal, that achievement. And as I said earlier, see that just behind it was another, <laughs> another goal, another right. achievement to, to Waiting. aim for. Exactly. You know, and it became a decision that I needed to make. Do I choose to be happy now, regardless uh, of what my circumstances are? Do I choose to do things that, that um, will facilitate that sense of contentment in my, in my own life, in myself? Um, or do I keep, chasing and I think that led me to reflect on well why do I keep chasing why do I keep thinking that these these uh you know these goals that are sort of looming ahead of me are going to make my life any more positive any more content than it already is and that caused me to look a little more widely at, you know the messaging we receive every day and the comparisons that we um you know, that we will put ourselves in the way of via social media and, and media and magazines and just socially. And that was sort of my realization of the fact that I had been trying desperately to keep up with the Joneses. Yes. Um, and I, I wanted to say goodbye to them in yes. that way.
0: Goodbye, Joneses. You <laughs> yes, know, you also so war- you warn people to not swap one set of Joneses for another, right?
1: Yes, Yes, and that was sort of very much on my mind as I wrote slow because slow living had sort of been around for a few years and had become more of a mainstream idea. And as so often happens, you know, when when really good, well-intentioned movements and countercultural ideas become more mainstream, they are commodified and they are, you know, in today's sort of – social media age, they become a hashtag. And with that, obviously, comes comparisons and comes a list of things that you should have or do in order to be considered someone who lives slowly. Uh, and I think that that's just as damaging as any other set of Joneses. You know, of course. It, it takes us away from uh, our why. It takes us away from our reasons um, for wanting to make these changes and also uh, takes us away from you know, the, the, the core of, uh, you know, our own contentment, we, we sort of apply someone else's lens to, to our efforts.
0: And we can't do that. You know, I, I just read a book, 13 things mentally strong women don't do. And the number Mm. one chapter is mentally strong women never compare themselves to anybody else. I like that, and that's, that's that's hard not to do. as you look at Instagram and everything and magazines it's it's very hard, but mentally is, strong women yeah. don't do that
1: and I, I mean, I'd love to sort of know some of the the backstory of you know the mentally strong women who have managed to to avoid or no longer compare themselves because I think for me anyway, and comparison is still something that I absolutely have to be very aware of, I think, particularly social media and um, that sort of thing, you know, but I'd be so curious to see how they arrived at that realization.
0: You'll have um, to listen to that episode of my podcast.
1: Oh, I will.
0: <laughs> it's the writer of that book came on and she talked about the 13 things that mentally strong women don't do. And it was fascinating. So you'll have to listen to that one. I want oh, to ask I will. You, Thank you, I want to ask you this question. Why do so many of us overconsume? I know a lot of us can't help but accumulate stuff. I know I do. Mm. I mean, shoes. I mean, mm. I have, <laughs> I have an addiction to shoes. And, and how do we break that?
1: You know, I think, um, the first thing that's really important to, to, to recognize is much like the tech industry. We are up against it when it comes to consumption. You know, we are fed thousands of marketing messages every day and it is quite literally thousands. We may not be consciously aware of the majority of them, but we absorb them. And those messages are saying, you know, you will be, you will have more time if you buy this thing or your life will be smoother if you have this thing. Uh, You know, and it is essentially selling us the idea of what it is we really want like it's it, it's selling to our pain points mm-hmm. so you're really <laughs> up against I mean we're really all up against it when it comes to avoiding those messages and I think the first thing to do is become aware of them you know yes. become aware of well who who stands to benefit from this thing that I'm going who's where's the money going and Right. What could I do with that money instead? Um, is it really worth this much of my time being uh, handed over? To and I somebody? always
0: rationalize. My daughters are 21 and 17. We all wear a size 10 shoe. So I think, oh, well, you know, I can um, give it to either one of them. So. <laughs> well, it's only like a third of a shoe, really. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I rationalize. <laughs> but you I'm going to stop. <laughs> I am stopping. I'm not
1: anti-shoe. I'm not anti-shoe, I promise you.
0: <laughs> you know, you also talk about the benefits of decluttering, but also talk about de-owning. What is de-owning?
1: Yeah, I think I came to this realization that I was decluttering over and over again, only to fill the space that I had freed up with new stuff.
0: <laughs> and <it's, laughs> More it's, shoes. More shoes.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and it, go, it does go back to your question of overconsumption. You know, why was I drawn to continue to want to own new things? Or if I let go of those things, why did I want newer, shinier things? Uh, so de-owning is really that process of digging into why I felt the need to uh, continue to buy things and what it might mean to me Uh, if I did that less, you know, if I challenged myself to, to simply consume less, even after I had decluttered. Um, And it it really does sort of, it was a real shock to the system to recognize how much of my identity was wrapped up in the things that I owned. Mm. So, you know, I started to experiment with, well, what would happen if I simply didn't have this thing? You know, how would I how would I approach it anytime I needed this this thing? And the the example I use in slow is a gravy boat, you know, mm. um, and I just borrow one. Yeah. <laughs> so it's sort <kind> of <laughs> perfect. It's kind of coming back to this this idea of um, you know neighborhoods and communities and how we can share our resources. And it it's actually it was really the first time I recognized that this idea of slow living and simplifying wasn't just a personal thing. It wasn't just about my Home, my family, my life. It the ripples of it can reach much further out into community and extended family and friends by simply sharing the resources that uh, that already exist. So it felt more of a radical um, community-centered approach to decluttering than simply just decluttering.
0: Boy, I love that idea, and it just brings you into your neighbourhood, and you realise you don't have to all have exactly the same thing. We can exactly. share and we can borrow. That's right. It's wonderful. That's right. Yeah. You know, in your most recent book, Care, you emphasize the importance of small care, which falls between the big cares of the world and our self-care. Can you explain what small care is and how you incorporated that into your life?
1: Yeah, small care is sort of the um, the the often neglected tiny acts of care that fill us up, that that satisfy a need for connection or kindness um, or nature or play or creativity in our own lives. And they can be self-focused, you know, but they can also be other-focused. And I came to this sort of realization last year when probably like the vast majority of people, I felt very, very burnt out by the global collective issues that were facing us all and continue to face us all because I'd spent all of my time worrying about those big issues, you know, consuming information endlessly about them, uh, that I neglected the, self, the, the self-care the self but also the small care. Mm. So um, I, I sort of experimented really heavily with it last year in that I wanted to see what would happen to, to me if I – tried a tiny act of care, of small care, every day. Uh, And I was blown away to recognize that, I guess, like the de-owning, decluttering conversation that we just had, practicing small care was not just a personal choice and it didn't just impact me personally. It started to, you know, ripple out into, again, my relationships with my kids and my husband and my neighbors and my family and my community uh, and that was when I realised that small care in itself is actually incredibly powerful and, in fact, I think the only way that we can sustainably show up for um, both the bigger issues facing us but also for our families and our communities because so many of us burn out, you know, yes. from all of the caring that we do for others and for other, for you know, the big things. Um, so small care to me is is the antidote to that overwhelming sense of almost helplessness that mm. that we face.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, I just think that um, people always say that sage is uh, advises to live in the moment or be more present. But you, if you take time to have just a bit of self care and small mm. care, you're calling it, then that allows you to be. More in the moment, more present, more with your family, more with your children. I just all It all kind of wraps itself all together.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it makes sense when we look at it, again, when we look at it rationally, but it's not necessarily a behavior that we see role modeled very much, you know, to, to take a few moments of your day to rest or to simply wander around the garden barefoot and feel the grass under your toes mm. or, you know, to to walk a different street on your way to the bus stop on your way to work. Those things all have very real impacts uh, and they're all accessible to to everyone. And that was the main thrust, I think, of the book was to make sure that all of these ideas of small care were as accessible to as many people as possible. Because I think that self-care, as it is currently sold to us, feels very exclusionary in terms of finances or time or access Um, so it was really important to me that, you know, you could do some of these acts of small care in as little as 30 seconds.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, Brooke, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask one more question, and it's a simple one, pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) How does one get started toward a slow, simple life? A lot of people want to do it, but, but they just don't know where to start. What's the first thing they should do to get on this journey?
1: I think figure out why you want to. You know, there's no point in trying to adopt a new way of life because you've heard me talk about it. It's really important to ask yourself what you stand to gain by slowing down. You know, what is it that you want to spend that time on or what would you like to improve? Um, You know, if you really feel game, then you should try writing your eulogy maybe. Um, But...
0: (laughs) Do you know what's Uh, funny? You 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 say that, and I emailed both my daughters in the last month what songs I once sung at my funeral, and they wrote back to me, "Oh, mom, that's so morbid." And I said, "No, it's not, sweetheart. I'm I plan to be around a long time, but but just know when I go, this is what I'd like sung." And and that's I haven't written my eulogy yet, but but that started it for me. You know, exactly.
1: You know, and. I think being being um, vulnerable enough with yourself to to think about that is is brilliant because it really does right size the problems of the day. You know, it, it it shifts the perspective to that of an entire lifetime. And I think when we're able to to put ourselves at the end of our lives and look back and and hopefully see what you know our children will say about us when we're gone or whoever it is that delivers the eulogy, that. Shifts our perspective enormously so that the things that we think are really big problems today, um, in fact, don't get a mention (laughs) in that eulogy. And that allows us to really reflect in the day to day on the choices we make. So I often, still, you know, years later, will, if I'm faced with a decision that I'm unsure of, I will ask myself, am I getting, is saying yes to this thing? getting me closer to or further away from that eulogy that I envisioned for myself. Mm -hmm. And it's such a powerful, Mm. um, touchstone on, on which to, to base decisions or to at least have those conversations with yourself. So I think that the best place to begin is, is to start with your why, and then to shrink the first step, whatever you come up with, um, down to the smallest possible step, you can make it, um, and you know, start there. I think small is incredibly powerful, uh, and it's essentially the only way I've made any real progress in the way that I've I've lived because I've 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 used the small steps rather than trying to leap ahead, you know,
0: all at once. That is such great advice, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really encourage anyone who's thinking about slowing down, and truthfully, all of us fall into that boat. You should absolutely. Listen to the Slow Home Podcast and buy one of your books. I'm going to list them here. The first one, Destination Simple, Everyday Rituals for a Slower Life. Your next one, Slow, Simple Living for a Frantic World. And your latest one, Care, The Radical Art of Taking Time. You know, Brooke, in these crazy, hectic times we live in, when so many of us are trying to do it all, I love that you're out there, you're leading the way, you're showing people the wonderful benefits of living a slower life. Thank you again, and I wish you luck with the launch of your latest book, Blessings to you, Brooke.
1: Thank you so much, Julie. This was
0: an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. It was just a pleasure for me, too. Thanks so much for joining me on Limitless Boldly Tackle Your Next Chapter. Subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know when new episodes drop. You can also keep up with me on Instagram at It's Me Julie Moran. Stay bold, everybody.